what a kind and welcoming body of Christ you are. And it has been and is a great joy for me. You know what? I love the people of the McGregor Baptist Church. Shame on me if I don't. And I love being at home with my wife and my two amazing dogs. Any guitarists in the room? That's a, that's a weird nonsense. Okay, the guitarists. My two dogs are named Gibson and Fender. Um, because both of my sons are avid guitarists. And that's, they named the dogs. And there we are, Gibby and Finn. If you're not a guitarist, even you know, those are the two great American guitar brands. I love, in short, I love being at home. But I also so appreciate the opportunity uh, to share the Word of God kind of whenever, wherever that opportunity arises. And you, you hope. Someone who, says, someone who says, well, I don't care what anybody thinks of me is by definition a sociopath. That's, one, one, one doesn't mind feeling welcomed and accepted, and you certainly have excelled in that. So thank you. I've got the impossible task, and I just gave away two minutes of the time that I've got. I've got the impossible task of painting a contextual framework for First Timothy and then beginning the first sort of paragraph of First Timothy. There's a lot in the context of First Timothy. Um, the, 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 a backdrop is Paul's relationship with Timothy. If you're going to understand uh, the pastoral epistles, you've got, to, you've got to have at least some idea of the biographical sketch. You can't just pop up and say a guy named Paul wrote a letter to a guy named, I guess you can, but, but much of the richness of the tapestry will be lost. And the, so you've got, you've got the letter of 1 Timothy, and then you've got behind it, you've got the the story of Paul and Timothy, and behind that, you've got the flow of Paul's missionary journeys and all that goes into that in terms of, of, of understanding the geography. A couple of geographical terms that are very, very important as you look at that area of the world. There are three major points you have to, you have, to have kind of pegged down geographically. Um, it is very helpful to know that Ephesus um, was, it, Ephesus is now a couple, three miles inland because the major harbor on which Ephesus sat has down the centuries silt to top. And, and modern, there is no modern city of Ephesus. The closest city is the, uh, uh, the, the port of Kusadasi. Ephesus didn't move, the coastline did. Um, as, as the, the bay silted up. But Ephesus is on sort of the tip of what is modern Turkey, the western tip, facing the Aegean sea coast. Across the Aegean, modern Greece uh, was cut into two major provinces. These are Roman province names, which Luke in Acts likes to use. And Paul picks up on his language sometimes in his own writing. And, it's, and it was contemporaneous. It was, it was the geographical reference points of the day. The northern part of Greece was the Roman province of Macedonia. Thessalonica was the capital. Thessaloniki 
today is the same city sitting in the very same place. There's not much archaeological Thessaloniki slash Thessalonica because there's a modern city there and I'm not going to let you tear my condo down to go looking for old rocks. There's a park with some archaeology, but not much. Another important city in that part of Macedonia was, of course, Philippi, which if you cross the Aegean Sea east to west, the, the, the port of Neapolis where Paul came ashore in Europe for the first time is the modern city of Kabbalah, K-A-V-A-L-A. It's right there. Ancient Roman ruins and Philippi is just inland from there. If you follow the Ignatian Way, by the way, in modern Greece, it's, it's an interstate called Via Ignatia. It's still the Ignatian Way. You can drive on it. Sections of it are not on top of the old Roman road. There are places where you can see the old Roman road, but you'll go from Philippi. That that ancient Roman highway began at the city gate of Byzantium, modern Istanbul, and proceeded straight across northern Greece to the coast and then by ship over, over to Rome. But following the Ignatian Way is why you come to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Paul's second missionary journey track. Timothy was with him for much of that journey. So when you get references to Macedonia, that's northern Greece. When you get references to Achaia, A-C-H-A-I-A, Achaia, that is southern Greece, of which the principal city was Corinth. Huge, bustling capital city. Enormously wealthy, enormously sophisticated, enormously ungodly. Um, and these are, not, these are not villages. These are some of the principal cities of the ancient world. Ephesus was a huge metropolis. But if you can, if you can picture in your mind the triangle of, of Macedonia and Achaia, northern and southern Greece, Ephesus on the other side of the Aegean Sea, you get those kind of points, you've got a spine you can hang much of the, the history on. Timothy probably was led to Christ on Paul's first missionary journey, inland Turkey. Paul, on his first missionary journey, doesn't make it as far as the west coast of Turkey, the west coast of Asia Minor. But these inland cities, the same cities that, by the way, were the recipients of Galatians from this morning. Paul is led to faith, probably, I mean, Paul leads Timothy to faith, probably, Because when he comes back about four years later on the second missionary journey, on the first missionary journey, he's traveling with with Barnabas. By the time he gets inland, John Mark has bailed. A whole nother narrative. But he and Barnabas apparently lead Timothy to faith in Christ. Timothy is at oldest a mid-adolescent at that time. Probably led to faith in Christ around the age of 12 or 13, so that when Paul comes back, he's probably in his upper teens on the second missionary journey. When Paul, having heard the young man's reputation, this is in the first part of Acts chapter 16, Paul recruits him as a young missionary volunteer. Now, I don't know the the missionary team history of, of Lone Oak First Baptist. I don't know who among you has, has been a part 
of an outside your culture missionary team. I hope a lot of you, because it's an amazing, amazing thing to be engaged in. I don't know who among you have, have, have led those teams. When I, when I have in the past had opportunities, but they've been limited in scope, maybe I can only take five or six people with me to some place. I confess to you, I will handpick the team that I take. I want a mix of seasoned people and people who are ready for the next step in experiencing something, right? Paul handpicked Timothy. I mean, carve that on your tombstone and call it a day, right? Handpicked by the Apostle Paul for missionary engagement. It'd be a wide tombstone, but wow, what a thing to have on it. <laughs> there, was a, there, was a, there was a high personal price for Timothy to pay to be involved with Paul in that missionary journey from Acts 16. You remember what Paul required of Timothy? Not for theological reasons, for accommodation reasons. Timothy, you are you're half Jew and half Gentile, but you are physiologically sending a confusing message in a culture that is public bathrooms and public bathhouses. I have students, I teach the book of Acts to high school seniors and I have students ask me all the time, why did Timothy have to be circumcised? Who'd have known? Well, we don't live in a public bathroom, public bathhouse culture, and I don't mean to be rude, but Timothy did. And the, I, I, son, I thought you were Jewish, would be a thing he would encounter that would be a distraction. So when Paul said, son, I want, I want you to come with me on, on the journey ahead. And, and regarding what I'm going to require of you, I guess I've got, I've got good news and bad news. Good news, I'm a rabbi. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> bad news, you're going to walk funny for a few days. These are historical events. These aren't sanitized fictional stories. This is what happened. Timothy joins Paul on the second missionary journey and is a part of Paul's travel in Philippi. Thessalonica, Berea. When Paul goes to Athens, he goes without his companions. He's in Athens, Acts 17, by himself, but then later when he moves over and crosses over to the Peloponnesian Peninsula to Corinth, Timothy rejoins him there, and for the 18 months of Paul's ministry in Corinth, Timothy is with him. On the second missionary journey, Paul spends more than two years at Ephesus. Timothy is with him during that time as well. And over the course of their years, Timothy becomes probably Paul's most invested disciple. At the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in prison in Rome. It's where the book of Acts ends. Paul has two Roman imprisonments. The first one, the one that begins at the end of the book of Acts is sort of a house arrest. It's described in Acts 28. He's there because he has appealed to Caesar. He's not in any particular trouble with the Roman government, and he is released in that first Roman imprisonment. And it is between his two Roman imprisonments. When he's released from that first Roman imprisonment, apparently he went to Philippi. He went to Macedonia. And from there, he writes... First Timothy. 
Soon after that, he writes Titus. Three or four years later, he is arrested again. This time he is in trouble with the Roman Empire. Roman persecution is heating up. He's arrested probably in either Philippi or possibly Troas, somewhere on the northern part of the Aegean Sea, and he's taken to Rome, this time to die. And there he writes 2 Timothy. If I may, I have suggested, Hank, is this okay? I have suggested to Hank that as y'all study the pastoral epistles, rather than go in the order they're bound in your Bible, rather than go 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, do them in biographical order. Do 1 Timothy and then Titus and then do 2 Timothy and let the uh, sort of the Pauline epitaph, the farewell message of the Apostle Paul that is the back half of 2 Timothy be your end to the series. And he has, he has graciously consented because we hadn't planned so far ahead that those things are all scheduled and stuff already anyway. So Paul, freshly released from Roman imprisonment, writing to a guy who's been his disciple for give or take, well, a bit more than a decade, who is now representing Paul in Ephesus. Paul is probably writing from northern Greece across to his disciple in western Turkey. He's been imprisoned and released. He's down to single-digit years that he's going to live. And so he begins to pour into these young men a lot. And God the Holy Spirit has chosen for us to get to have a copy, which is a remarkable thing. So the old apostle picks up his pen or speaks to his scribe. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. I mean, just stop there. What an affirmation. What a relationship. We throw around in discipleship conversations that every Christian who's been a Christian for a while should have a Timothy or more than one. There's weight to that. Our, our time on earth once we're saved, is to be given to disciple-making. It's to be a passion. Is there anybody that you could call your true child in the faith? What a thing. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Here we go again with the false teaching. By the way, pretty much every book in your New Testament addresses the danger of false teaching. It is the New Testament's biggest human situational issue. The distortion and false teaching of gospels that aren't. It is an overwhelmingly recurring theme. 
so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, tonight, so that the law of averages lands me in a decent spot, I have only two points. Five this morning, two tonight, that's seven and a half on average. That's, I mean, seven, that's three and a half on average. That's the ratio I can live with. Two major points. Roman number one, the enemies of the gospel. And by the way, the enemies of the gospel are in view here again. Different set, same mindset. Here, the enemies of the gospel, an unhelpful approach, verses one through six. An unhelpful approach. There are certain persons. One almost gets the idea that if Paul had chosen at this moment to name them, Timothy would have said, oh yeah, I know that guy. It's amazing how often, I've, I've, I've worked in Baptist churches, but really not done any other significant employment for 40 years. And it's funny how often in a church, and I'm not suggesting it's happened here or has happened or is happening, but it's amazing how often the leaders know who that guy is. The one who can't, who can't be allowed to teach because he believes weird stuff. And the one who would promote his weird stuff given the forum. It's amazing how often there are certain persons. And if you've got any of those, love them enough to have the conversation and get it over with. I'm talking about somebody that you're not comfortable with. I'm talking about somebody whose belief framework and teaching framework is just out of whack. Don't let them teach any different doctrine. Your church and mine have a confession of faith. Uh, I don't know how yours is formally. Ours is cited in our Constitution. Our church's confession of faith is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 version with some additional language we've added about sexuality and gender because nobody in the year 2000 thought that needed confessing. 
that the boys ought to use the boys' room and the girls ought to use the girl room, girls' room wasn't an argument we were having in the year 2000. Boy, in the year 2023, you've got, if you're going to make a stand on that, it's a good thing to confess something at any rate. Nobody at McGregor can teach out of whack with our confession. If they teach out of whack with our confession, they're going to get called down. If I teach out of whack with our confession, I'm going to be called down. The confession is the congregation's statement of what the congregation believes. And that matters. Paul says, don't let them come with false doctrine. Not these certain persons. Further, not only false doctrine, but, but foolish distraction. Not to devote themselves, or nor to devote, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. It's amazing the books out there that I don't have time to read. And other people do. And we're family, and I like coming to the floor sometimes. Um, you know, it's the, it's, it's the guy who, you know, you, 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 we talked about the end times this morning and got a laugh about the diversity of positions, right? You know, guy walks up, and he's got a stack of books, and it's, you know, have you, have you understood that the, the, the seven Jewish festivals across 49 phases of the moon and, and, and the position of the this and the that and the, the fact that this village was there and that, that'll help me. And I'm, and I'm going, man, you're killing me. How in the world? I, I don't doubt that it's great recreational reading. I don't doubt that it's obviously charged your battery. But, but if, I, if, I have to, if I have to read that much stuff about Jewish festivals and moon phases to understand what Jesus said to Gentiles about his return, I, uncle, man, uncle. And if you're, if, you're, if you're thriving, if that's what's turning your crank, but you're not actually discipling anybody, and you haven't told a lost person about Jesus in 10 years, dude, you're off point. You're off point. No matter how fascinated you are by the intricacies of your study. And by the way, I got no problem with being fascinated by intricate study. But when you, when you make it your hallmark, you're just distracted. You're just off point. And not only is Paul saying avoid false doctrine, in a parallel statement he's saying avoid, avoid foolish distraction. Don't let yourself get sidebarred. And wow, do people want to talk about stuff. In the last three or four years, we've had the opportunity, nay, the temptation. Let's, let's preach a series on the pandemic and what it means. Well, I am not a virologist. 
I'll tell you what the pandemic means and meant. Some folks got sick. Some folks got very sick. But nothing changed in the Great Commission. Nothing changed in our marching orders. Tell you what you do. I had, pe I had people saying, you ought to tell people what they ought to do on the various list of responses to the pandemic. The closest I came is I said, look, if you don't have a doctor you trust, find one. And then you and the doctor you trust get behind the door of his office Ask him what you ought to do and believe him. Or find a doctor that you can ask him what to do and believe him. There is no biblical position on the various bullet list of pandemic responses. And I know some of y'all are mad at me for having said that. But you talk about a foolish distraction. Masks. Vaccines and social distancing are not heaven and hell matters. Therefore, they are less than heaven and hell matters. And they are not worth the shelf space we reserve for heaven and hell matters. Amen? Oh, good. Thank you. Avoid false doctrine. Avoid sidebar conversations that bog you down and burn your intellectual and rhetorical energy out on something other than the teaching of God's Word. False doctrine, foolish distraction, and fruitless discussion. Skipping down into verse 6, these same certain persons, the certain persons of verse 3 are the same certain persons of verse 6, they, they are swerving from the aim, which is given in verse 5. I'll come back to that. By swerving into the weeds, they've wandered away into vain discussion. Discussion is good. I, I, I say it all the time. If you want to go deep on that, you bring the Coke Zero. I have an astonishingly comfortable office the church has provided for me. And we will put our feet up on the coffee table, and if you provide the Coke Zero, and we can, we can split theological hairs, you and I, until the cows come home and have a great time doing it, as long as we begin and end as brothers who love each other, and as long as there's nothing more important going on, just be warned, there's quite often something more important going on. But man, I love, I love theologuing. We want to theologue. That's recreation for me. And if we disagree, it's even more fun. Because we can go at it like cats with a ball of yarn. But we can also waste time. I've seen churches get at each other's throat over carpet color. I've seen arguments about forget secondary matters third tier matters cost people relationships that they ought to have treasured and valued if you've got time for false doctrine foolish distraction or fruitless discussion somehow the main thing has been lost The aim of our charge, according to verse 5, Timothy, the reason I want these certain persons stood down, 
What we're after is love. Love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Have a... By the way, you don't get a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith without embracing the gospel tightly. The enemies of the gospel, their unhelpful approach. And second, their unholy ambition. My second point. What are these guys after? The ones that are cranking out the false doctrine and the foolish distraction and the fruitless discussion. What are they after? They're after, I'll give it to you in, in 21st century English and then we'll look. What they're after is they want to be perceived as gurus. They want to be the smartest guy in the room. They want to be the go-to that you go to for how to live. They got all the rules to live by. They got notebooks full of them. There's nothing wrong with being regarded as a wise and competent teacher of God's word. I aspire to be regarded as a wise and competent teacher of God's word. Many of you are, but I ain't no guru. I can't tell you things that only God the Holy Spirit can tell you about your decision making. If God's word hadn't addressed that, I've got no idea. I'll pray with you. And hope you don't muck it up too badly. But I'm not a life coach. Lord, deliver me from pastors who call themselves a life coach. I can't coach my own life all that well, let alone yours. I'm not a clinical counselor. Bring me an issue that the Word of God addresses, and with grace I'll hope to show you what the Word of God says about your issue, but I'm... Ah, but these guys, here it is. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law. There it is. That's what they want. They got it figured out. You want the principles to how to run a successful business? I got 20 of them. You want how to be an effective leader? I got, well, usually it's 17 of those. There's an author who's taken the same 17 principles and written 19 different books with those same 17 principles. Dude's running a scam. I'll give him that. The, um, the life coaches are out there. The teachers of the how-to are out there. And I'm not against pragmatic teaching, by the way. But pragmatic teaching can eclipse our, centri our centrality on the gospel. And we can fall in to, to topical or passing fad hobby horses and neglect the teaching of God's Word. That's a tragic thing. That's why I so much love that your, your Sunday evenings is going to be about teaching verse by verse through books. That's where you learn the whole counsel of God. Topical preaching is not evil, but topical preaching is not as useful my goodness, the passages I never would have preached. 
If it wasn't a situation where, holy cow, that's the next paragraph, and if I skip it, our people will notice. So now I'm going to have to learn that and apply it so I can hope to teach it with a straight face. And that's a good thing. But these guys, they desire to be teachers of the law. Now, the law is not bad. And the law has a purpose. The law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, our guardian to drive us to Christ. The, the, the ethical rules of God's law are designed to make you cry uncle because you can't do it. I've been all around the Jerusalem Council. I think I've alluded to it 20 times today. Acts 15 is one of the most historically important chapters in the book of Acts because it is the Jerusalem Council, that gathering of elders and apostles, missionaries, that upheld the principle of the gospel of grace. And one of my favorite moments in the Jerusalem Council, because the argument is, shall we take the position that you have to keep the Jewish law to be saved? That's the argument of the Jerusalem Council. And there's an old guy sitting over in the corner who's paid his dues. His name's Simon Peter. By this time, he's not terribly old, but he's no longer terribly young. And he's sitting over in the corner while they're arguing this thing of, um, yeah, yeah, you have, to, you have to keep the law in order to be a Christian. You have to have the, the Old Testament law in order to be a Christian. And, and finally, Simon Peter gets enough of it, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not wrong. Simon Peter, over from his spot in the corner, says, y'all are arguing about whether you have to keep the law to be saved when none of you, when none of your grandfathers either, none of you ever did it. If you have to keep the law to be saved, it's a little ironic since the law has never been kept by anybody. It's like he takes, he takes his harpoon and just their entire argument. It's a beautiful thing. The law has a purpose. The law's purpose is to make you cry out for a savior. In evangelism, when you, if you have an opportunity to tell somebody who's trapped in homosexual sin, and homosexuality is sin. There's a revolutionary statement. If you have an opportunity to tell somebody who's trapped in the sin of homosexuality, and you've only got a couple of sentences, don't tell them they need to be straight. Tell them they need to be saved. You've got somebody who's trapped in addiction, don't tell them they need to stop drinking or shooting up or smoking. Tell them they need Jesus. And by the way, it's interesting, this list of, of, of characteristics of, of people whose lives are marked, that if, if your life is marked, remember, the gospel is transformative. And if you're defined by the behaviors on this list, it's not that you need to straighten up your life. It's that you need to be saved. And notice that lying and perjury sit on this list along with things we'd be a little more comfortable labeling as sin. The law is a tool in the hands of a gospel evangelist to be used of God to convince people of their need for a savior. It is not the means to beat up Christians in order that they would live a holier life. The followers of Jesus follow Jesus. 
Yes, we need to be discipled. Yes, we need to be trained in godliness. But beating up people with rules to live by is not the key to effective Christian disciple-making. This morning I introduced to you the term goat coaching. I'll define it one more time, then I'm done. Goat coaching is when you are zealous to teach people how they ought to act. If, if you're, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, here's how you need to act. Tick, 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 tick. And you're more concerned by getting them to conform to a behavioral and appearance model than you are the actual state of their soul. And so if you can coach a goat to do a more effective sheep impersonation, well, you call that a win. The problem is they burn out in this life, or worse, they burn forever in hell. And they've done everything you told them to do because you never got around to telling them to throw it all on Jesus and cry out to him, which, by the way, if you've never done, now would be good. If you're here this evening and I don't know you well, haven't had time. If you're here this evening and you've never come to faith in Christ, please, I do not mean that you've never walked the aisle. I do not mean that you've never prayed the prayer or filled out the card. If you've not come to a place where a transformative, permanent relationship with Jesus began in your heart by grace, why not be saved tonight? Why not cry out to him? And... If you've never joined the church, I don't know that it's true here, but it generally is true in churches. There's a whole lot of folks who, who kind of come even and participate and hang around, but they've got some issue with membership. The church is a body of Christ. That implies, you know what? This is not a pinky. That's my pinky. There are a lot of pinkies in the room that aren't my pinky. But these two are mine because they're connected. Every reference to the body of Christ in the New Testament is an argument for, for oh, I don't like formal church membership. What other sort is there? If you'll be a part of this family, be a part of this family. Why not now? What a great historic moment. In the life of this church, you will never forget the season wherein you join this church if you join this church at this moment. Now would be good. So if you want to talk about those things, again, there'll be folks down front. If you want to talk about coming to faith in Christ, I'm not going to hurry away. Let's stand together and let's pray and then we'll have our response song. Lord Jesus Thank you for your word. And thank you that a young pastor named Timothy in over his head in Ephesus got a letter from his old mentor that began with saying, man, this matters. There are certain people you need to rein in. 
because the gospel is being lost. And Lord, thank you that at, at Ephesus, apparently it kind of worked. Because a, a few decades later, when you wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus, we have it in the book of Revelation, their, their doctrine was solid. Their love had cooled a bit, and that was a problem, but their belief framework was solid, and that's not an accident. Lord, we thank you for that. May our belief framework be solid. And may our solid belief drive us to Christ-honoring practice, enthusiasm for your gospel, love for your word, devotion to each other and the Great Commission. Lord, thank you for this sweet church. May she be blessed in the season ahead. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.